until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maybe you're blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. If you have not been with us, we are walking through verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is about the local church and what God has called the local church to be. And what Paul has done in the first three chapters is what the theologians call our, uh, our, our orthodoxy, what we believe to be true about Jesus Christ. That's our theology, if you will. Theology means the study of God. And so Paul has been shaping out what the study of God needs to be for the local church. We've talked about that. And if you haven't been with us, please go online and look it up uh, and just walk with us through what we believe is the theology of the local church. Well, in verse chapters 4, 5, and 6 is what we do with our theology. It's what the theologians call our orthopraxy, what, how we live out what we believe to be true. You see, because if all we have is knowledge and our knowledge doesn't lead to transformation, then we're just like the heathens, or what James says, we're just like the, the, the devil's uh, schemes. Even the demons believe, but they don't do anything with what they believe, so they're full of knowledge. Right? Satan was full of the knowledge of God, was he not? But what did he do with the knowledge of God that he had? You see, Satan was in the kingdom of God. He was in heaven with God himself. And yet his knowledge of God never transformed who he was. And from the moment he went to rebel against God, that's what he's been doing ever since. Is If he can distract the people of God just with the knowledge of God and we don't practice what we know, then we will be heathens like Paul has been presenting in the first three chapters. And yet he comes at us pretty hard in chapter 4. And he talks about what is it going to look like for us to take our knowledge and put it into practice. And he talks about this one word over and over and over again in the first 16 verses. It's the word unity. We talked about that last week. We're going to talk about it again this morning. You see, if our, our theology doesn't lead us to orthopraxy, and our orthopraxy, what we believe to be true about God, doesn't unite us, then we're in trouble, does it not? You see, when I've been studying the book of Ephesians, we'll get there in a few weeks. Probably months, sorry, that's a lie. <laughs> We're going to get to chapter 6. And chapter 6 starts with the full armor of God. And I, I don't want to give away that series. But if you look at where the full armor of God and how the full armor of God is listed, if you look closely, 
The full armor of God only covers the front side of us. I don't think that's by mistake. Because I think Paul is going to tie it all the way back to our unity. You see, if you've got my back, then I don't need anything on my back to protect me because you've got my back. And my great fear for us here at Powell's Chapel, I'm not talking about church universal. I'm talking about us, the people of God here that God has selected from this community to be a part of this church. My fear is our unity is fractured. And we continue to wander about and go about the things of this world and we continue to struggle. And my fear is we struggle because we don't have a place of unity. And we're going to talk about that this morning. This morning's message is titled Church Maturity. And you may be wondering, well, what does church maturity have to do anything with church unity? It has everything to do with the other. I don't know if you've ever been to a four or five-year-old playground. I, I mean, just go to Chuck E. Cheese. There is no unity in that building. Is it? I mean, it's mass chaos. You're just hoping for the best. But I, I, I often wonder when I'll go there with Tennyson and Cedar. Spiritually speaking, is that what we look like? Let me say that again. Do we look like that, church? Immature kids running around for our entertainment? Are you coming here this morning for strict entertainment? I am not here to entertain any of you. Rob was not here to entertain you with music. If you're coming to be entertained with music, go down to the Ryman Auditorium. You will have way better music than what you just heard here. But if you're here for unity, for the sake of the body, then come with all of your hearts busted open for the glory of God because it won't matter what we sing or what I preach. If you're here for entertainment, the world will entertain you to the nth degree, the church has not been given to you by God to entertain you, but to sanctify every one of us to become what this word says, the likeness of Christ Jesus. So let's get to the passage. Church maturity does three things in this passage. It produces, it protects, and it progresses. Let's look at the first one in verse 13. Church unity produces. This is what the verse says. Until we all obtain to what? The unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. You see in this passage, we'll see maturity over and over again. L just look in this first verse. Until we obtain. That's an ongoing obtaining. That's not one day you will obtain it. The one day that you obtain unity or maturity is what the, the theologians saw is our glorification. So what Paul is saying is there's this ongoing desire for unity or maturity. You will never be fully matured here on this planet. I hope not. I mean, we, we, that's the beauty here of Powell's Chapel. We're, we're multi-generations. So I can look at 
Brother Robert, I could look at the men in the back. There's this ongoing maturing that I see in these men. But thank God these men aren't the same as when they first came to Christ Jesus. Or we'd be in trouble. Because God calls us in his word for us, the younger men, the younger women, to look to the mature ones, does he not, in 1 Timothy? He's not talking about age, brothers and sisters. He's talking about spiritual maturity. So he says there's this ongoing maturity that will reunite us in unity. And then he says these are the two things of what our maturity must look like in our unity. And he says this. We must be unified in our faith. And we must be unified in our knowledge. Now that word faith isn't our saving faith. You see, there is a saving faith. It's called our justification. When all of us came to know Christ Jesus, we were justified in the moment. You see, justification happens in a blink of an eye. It's when the Lord Jesus calls you from death to life. It's what the psalmist says when he plucks you from the mire and the clay into his bosom. It happens in a moment. He chooses us in a moment. In our justification, justification happens. It's the idea of when you're in a courtroom and the judge lays down the gavel and says he is innocent. It happens in a moment. There is an ongoing innocence. It happens in a moment. That's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul is talking about is there's this ongoing sanctification. So this faith that we have is our faith, the thing that is ongoing in us to sanctify us. I do not want Tennyson and Cedar to have the ongoing faith that they have today when they're 80 years old. That will be pathetic. So do we first have this ongoing faith of our sanctification that's unifying us? I'm going to get to how that happens in a moment. It gets to how that happens. The application is in the last part of this passage. Paul's going to walk us through unity. He's going to walk us through maturity. And he's going to say, how do we get there? So the first thing is this. We must be unified in our faith. You see, we don't do Sunday school for the sake of doing Sunday school. We don't do small groups for the sake of doing small groups. We don't do prayer groups on Wednesday night for the sake of doing prayer groups. Because we've always done it that way. The reason we do these things is for our ongoing faith will be strengthened and will produce, that means keep going to something else. That's why we do all that we do. I was saying to someone this morning, we we do two things, and only two things at this church, and everything must filter between these two things, is to know God and to make him known. We're a very simple church when it comes to that. Everything that we do is going to be through the lens of knowing God. That's our ongoing faith, our sanctifying faith, is to know God. And so the question is to you this morning, What is your part in your ongoing sanctification? If this is all that you come to do for your sanctification, it will never be enough. Could you imagine me feeding my kids one meal a week? 
they would be what? Malnourished. My great fear for us is that we're malnourished. And my great fear for us is that you blame me. I, I can only feed you as much as I can. The rest is up to you. But you have to be maturing. That's the first thing. Are we were maturing in our faith? And our knowledge. The two in one. He says, so the, the two things that produces, uh, maturity produces is knowledge, unity, and faith and knowledge. Those go together. The, the knowledge is saying this. It's your ongoing understanding of who God is. I heard an amazing message this past week. I was at a conference. And this man got up and talked about the immutability of God, that, that God is not changing. So if God is not changing, God is a static God, that, that means the vast knowledge of who God is ought to be ongoing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. My finite brain cannot get and grasp the fullness of who God is. And yet I wonder, church for us, when it comes to that, are we satisfied in the little we know about God? Let me say that again. Are you satisfied with how little you know God? Like, are you okay today as you sit in this pew and you think, man, this is what I know about God. And what it is, I promise this, it's about a millimeter thick. And are you satisfied with that? Could you imagine going into a relationship with your spouse and all that you knew about her or him was a millimeter thick? That would be a disastrous marriage, would it not? And what does God say to us? He says, you are my bride. That's the analogy he gives us. You see, I've been married to Jenny over a decade. And there's still things I don't know about Jenny. I ask this question all the time in counseling. And they look at me like I, I have four heads. But it's true for every one of us. I want you to think of this right now. What is your favorite toe on your body? All of us have one. Like all of us look at our feet. I don't like that toe and I like that toe. I wish this toe looked like that toe. It's true as the day is long. And I just wonder, does your spouse know about that? That's just a silly example. Does your spouse know what you like to eat? Does your spouse know your favorite color? Does your spouse know your favorite place you like to go? Does your spouse know how you enjoy God's word? Does your spouse know what your prayer life is like? Does your spouse know what your memorization of the word is like? On and on and on I go. That is finite compared to our knowledge of the Holy One. And I just wonder, church, are we satisfied with the little we know about God? Are you hungry for more of God? See, that's the knowledge. Our unity will grow as we expand our brains to the knowledge of God. That's what Paul says, does he not? Until we all obtain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. 
So unity is going to happen through my faith in God and Jesus Christ. But my, my unity with the church is also going to be in my knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And then the last one. What does maturity produce? It produces unity through faith and knowledge. But it's also what? He says this. The knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. What Paul is saying to that is our conformity to Christ Jesus. What was Christ Jesus? He was the son of God. But what marked the son of God? I believe it is captured in John 3.16. So God so loved the world. He gave his only son. And Jesus says it this way in the Gospels, that there's no greater love than this, that he would lay his life down for his friend. And so if we're going to conform to the image of God through Christ Jesus, then we have to have the attribute of love. If you look at the, 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 in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter, you, you take love out of any of those other characteristics, you don't have love. And so is our conformity to Christ Jesus, the fullness of who Christ Jesus in us, does it start with love? Here's what Paul says. Here's what Jesus says. It's easy to love your friends, is it not? But what does Paul say about the love of God, the love of Christ Jesus? He says, why were we yet? sinners Christ died for us and if he just said in the gospels that Jesus loved us so much as his friends that he lay his life down for us then we got to take that and we got to put that on top of Romans that Christ loved his enemies he loved us so much that he gave his only son and that Jesus laid down his life for his enemies the conformity of Christ Jesus is that we love those who are lovable, but we also love those who aren't lovable. Now, we don't want to go there too often, do we? Man, we want to run to this side. Now, let me, let me love those who are easy to love, but man, God forbid I go there. And yet the very essence of who God is from the creation of the world was to love his enemies. The conformity of Christ Jesus. Turn with me. To First Peter chapter one. This is another way that we are to conform to Christ Jesus. That brother can preach. Let's go first Peter chapter one. This is what the conformity of Christ Jesus is told to us in this passage. First Peter chapter one, verse thirteen through. 16. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded, setting your hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Christ Jesus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of of your former ignorance, 
But as he who called you holy, you also shall be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The conformity to Christ Jesus is our holiness, is it not, in these two passages? So if we're going to become like Jesus, then we must take an ongoing inventory of what does my holiness look like. Holiness means this. The word holiness means to be set apart. And I would beg the question, church, are we in the world and of the world? Are we in the world but not of the world through our conformity of Christ Jesus that we are in this world but we are holy and therefore we're set apart. And therefore since we're set apart from the world, the world will begin to ask us questions. How are you so different than I am? And we get the point to our conformity to Christ Jesus. Let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, another place. Excuse me, Romans chapter 12. I skipped ahead. Romans chapter 12. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's the next point. So how are we to conform into the image of Christ Jesus? Paul lays it out for us in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what? Holy. We're to present our bodies as a holy sacrifice to God. Acceptable to God. The only thing that is acceptable to God is a holy sacrifice. We see that throughout the Old Testament. When the Old Testament people would bring their sacrifice to God and it wasn't holy and acceptable, what did God do? He rejected that sacrifice. He killed people over not bringing a holy, acceptable sacrifice. And Paul is saying to us in Romans that the way that we serve and worship God is that we would be a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. That's our conformity to Christ Jesus. Which is what? Your spiritual worship. And this is how we do it. This is how we are to live holy and acceptable lives. Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind, that by the testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, church, I'd ask you this. Your conformity to the Lord Jesus starts with the mind, so you have to ask yourself, what are you putting into your mind? Now, I'm not against television at all, but are you watching television that you find humorous and the Lord Jesus looks on it with a lack of humor? Are you putting in your mind music that goes into your brain that trickles to your heart that God would say, oh no. Do you laugh at the things that God would never laugh at? I find myself there quite often. The humor of this world is very humorous, but it's deplorable to the Lord Jesus. And so I beg the question, church, in our conformity to the Lord Jesus, 
Are we watching everything that goes in to our mind? Because it's by the transforming of the mind that we become holy and blameless and acceptable to God. Anyone ever ask the question, what's the will of God for my life? I guess I'm the only one, Brother Frank. Let me ask that question. Anyone ever wonder what the will of God is for their life? And I often wonder to myself, do I not know the will of God because of what I'm distorting in my brain and my heart and I can't discern what the will of God is because there's a, a plaque in my brain and heart that takes away from understanding the will of God? You see, God's will for your life and my life is plain as Jane. But so often our lives are cluttered with so much stuff from the world that we can't discern what the will of God is. That's not a God problem. That is a person problem. The conformity of Christ Jesus. If you and I as the church want to mature, we must be unified in our faith and our knowledge of him and we must be conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. It has to start there, church. But here's the beauty of maturity. Maturity doesn't just produce something. Maturity also protects. Let me say that again. We'll see that in verse 14. Maturity protects. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 14. So he's saying as you conform to God, as you are united in your faith and knowledge of God, what for? And he answers, Paul answers, so that. You do these things so that what? So that we, the church, the people of God, may no longer be children. Go back to the analogy at Chuck E. Cheese. What Paul was saying is that we don't need a bunch of Christians that look like Chuck E. Cheese kids. He's saying as you put these things into practice, your unity into the knowledge and in the faith of God and your conformity of God, you will mature. That's a promise we see in the text. You do these two things, the promise is that there will be maturity in your life so that you are no longer children. Think about children for a moment. Are they not the most fickle creatures on the planet? Here's how I know, just yesterday, preparing for this message. I had the two children at the house getting ready for supper. Mistake might be on me. I, I'll take blame from you older parents. I said, we're going to have pizza tonight. Yay for pizza. Put the pizza in the oven, bring the pizza out. Nah, I don't like that kind. You just told me you wanted pizza. So I said, okay, I'll eat the pizza. What do you want? Peanut butter and jelly. So I'll make Tennyson and peanut butter and jelly. Cedar and his little three-year-old self. Me too, me too, peanut butter and jelly. Make another peanut butter and jelly. Put it in front of him. Nah. Bro, you just told me you wanted pizza. You don't want pizza. You told me you wanted peanut butter and jelly. You don't want peanut butter. Any, any that ever happened? To, oh, I'm just a bad parent. And I thought to myself in that moment, man, that is what I am like without maturity in my walk with Christ. Like, I go to God for this thing, it doesn't happen the way I want it to happen. I go to God for this thing, it doesn't happen. Man, I'm just bouncing all over the place. Mature people don't do that, do they? And yet he's saying to us, 
when we come into the conformity of Christ Jesus, we will be mature. When we are mature, we won't bounce all over the place. That's the beauty of maturity. There's this steadfastness with maturity. Like this imagery in the text is this. Anyone ever gone? He says it here in a moment. That you are no longer to be like children tossed to and fro by the waves. Like if you go out to sea and you don't put an anchor down, man, there's no telling where you're going to end up. What what he's saying is don't be like children. Put an anchor down. What is our anchor? Our anchor is in Christ Jesus, the one that never moves. The immutability of God. God never moves. So if I put my anchor in him, I can be sure I'm headed in that direction because God is always headed in his holiness. And he says to us, don't be like children tossed to and fro. Well, what's the things that will make us tossed to and fro? By the waters carried about by every wind of doctrine. Well, what, what does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. It goes back to what I said in the conformity of God. There are some good Christian books out there. Good quotations. There's a good preacher in Houston with a mullet. But that is wind doctrine. That is terrible doctrine. There are churches in our area that they look great on the outside, but you get in, you sit, and you listen to their doctrine. It is way off. Well, how do you know it's way off if you are not founded in this? That's what Paul is saying. Here in Ephesians, the church of Ephesians, the people of the church began to hear doctrine that he would later say tickles your ears, makes you feel good. Like, your best life now, that feels good. Does it not? Now, I want my best life now. Well, that's counter to what God says. God says your best life now will be full of persecution if you're going to be like him. That doesn't sound like your best life now, does it? it? It doesn't sound good. Like, you come to Jesus, you make all this money. That's not true in God's word. And so as we mature in our knowledge, in our faith, in our conformity to God, our maturity will protect us. And when it protects us, it will protect the church. You see, because you must be a Berean. The Bereans, Paul says to the Bereans, hey, test everything that I say. And my great fear for us, church, I could get up here and teach an eloquent message That was heresy, and my great fear is you'd believe me because you're not going home and testing it with the Word of God. Here's my other great fear. We're to test it on this, the Word of God, not on our bylaws and constitution. I might get in trouble for that one. But if you're taking what I preach from here and you're putting against our bylaws and constitution, there might be grave differences. But I promise you this, church, that you will never hear me speak against this word. 
And my great hope for us is that we're maturing in our faith with the Lord Jesus. And you're hungry for this, not some other book that complements this. God gave us everything that we need in this book and this book alone. But see, our maturity will protect us with sound doctrine, is what he tells us in Titus. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine does not come from a constitution or a bylaw. It comes from the word of God and the word of God alone. So when we mature, we protect. We will protect the church. Let's go to... He gives a few other illustrations. False doctrines, deceitful schemes, human cunning. Deceitful schemes mean this. The idea of clever manipulation. Stepping on any toes yet? What he's saying is preferences. You see, when I have a preference, I'll manipulate the heck out of things to get my way. That's what children do, do they not? I mean, children are the most manipulative people on the planet. And they think we're stupid as parents. Like, I want to tell Cedar Man, bro, I am six foot two. I know what's behind your back because I can see over you. Like, out of sight, out of mind, that's how a kid works. And the quieter they get, the more dangerous they get. (laughs) And yet, that's us as the church. My great fear, church, is that we're quiet on some things we need to be real loud about. And church, my fear is we see quiet people doing quiet things and we see it and we don't call it out because we're so afraid. Well, God says the unity is going to come through confrontation. That's what he tells us in Galatians 6. You who are spiritual confront those who are not healthy. Well, that's those who are doing malicious things in the church. The church isn't for you. The church is for the glory of God. He says this, just for the sake of time, I won't go through every single one. Deceitful schemes. It's the word in the Greek that means trickery. It's the word in the Greek that means to play dice. Uh, There's no fair game in Vegas. They say it's fair, but everything's rigged. The, The... the casino's always going to make theirs, are they not? And yet my great fear for us, church, is we operate like a casino. Meaning, man, we're going to do whatever we can for our gain, not for the glory of God. But as we mature, church, we will protect the church from those things. And here's how it has to happen. Here's the application to the passage. Our maturity is progressive. Verses 15 and 16. Rather, speak the truth in love. 
say that again. What he's saying to us, church, is when you see the first two aren't happening, the truth has to come through love. You see, if I'm going to confront you, I have to do it as your pastor in love. I have to confront you in love if your faith is weak. I have to confront you in love if your knowledge of God is weak. I have to do that. Not out of frustration. It must be rooted in love is what Paul tells us. He says, speak the truth in love. The way the Greek reads is truthful telling. Be truthful in your telling is what Paul is saying here in the passage. Be truthful in your telling. We are to what? Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, it's telling the truth in love that grows us to the conformity of Christ Jesus. For whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped when each part, each member, each one of you, me included, is working properly. Right? What is the properly working? It goes back to what we talked about last week. God has gifted you uniquely. And so you must work properly in your uniqueness for the building up of the body. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. Makes the body what? Grow. So it builds itself in love. You see that progression in that text? That's an ongoing maturity, an ongoing speaking in love, an ongoing building in love, an ongoing a building together that builds us up into love. And so I ask the question, church, what does our love look like? Let's turn to John 13. Start in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So he's talking about the glory of God. He's talking about Christ bringing the glory of God. That's where it starts, is what John is saying with, through what the words of Christ Jesus. And then he turns to his disciples and says this, Little children, yet a little while I am not with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give to you, that you what? You love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another by this. What's the this? The this is the love that you have for one another. But the love for one another has to flow out of the glory of God. If he starts with it's about the glory of God, he turns and says a new commandment. We've got to take the new commandment. Look back at what he just said. He just talked about the glory of God. So the new commandment is the glory of God through what? Through what he says in verse 
35, by this, all people, all means all in the Greek, does it not, Mr. Roberts? Thank you. Does it not? So all people, that means everyone around us, Christian and non-Christian, that all people will what? Know that you are my disciples, that you are conforming into my image, that you are becoming like me. The world will know by the way that you what? You love one another. You see, when we mature in our Christ-likeness, we mature in our love, when we mature in our love, then the world will know there's something different about us. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. I beg the question, Powell's Chapel, do we really love one another? Let's turn to 1 John 3, 11. Put your steel-toed boots on for a moment. I preach this in love, I promise. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because of his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, the church, that the world hates you. You know that we have passed out of the death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brothers in need, yet chooses in his heart against him, how does God's, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. So I ask you, Pals Chapel, do we love one another? Are we willing to make sacrifices for one another? Turn just a page over to 1 John 4, 7. He goes on with the theme of love. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So how are we to know if we know God and are born of God? It's through our love. That's what the passage just tells us, is it not? So you want to know if you're a true believer? Take your love uh, stick out and dip it into the love and see what comes out. If it comes out empty like it does when you check the oil in your car, then you're in trouble. But if it comes out full, then you know you're from God based on this passage of love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this love. Not that we have already loved God, but that what? God loved us and sent his son for, to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if God so loved us we ought to love one another no one has ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us and his love is perfected in us you see 
maturity is progressive and it's progressive in our love for one another if you want to really know if you're a believer this morning do you really love your brother and sister that sits in the pew beside you in front of you behind you you see john is going to say again in another passage that you can't hate your brother if you hate your brother then you are a murderer there's more hate in the church than i think we're willing to admit to how does the church divide over the color of a carpet how does the church divide over the style of music how does the church divide over the silly things that it splits over because it doesn't love one another there's no unity you see if we're all unified it doesn't matter if this is a polka dot carpet because our sole purpose is to glorify god You see, love kills preferences. Kills it. God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever shall believeth in him will have eternal life. And I ask the question based out of 1 John. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This is what the love looks like. He gives us the example that Christ laid down his life for us. Are we willing, church, to lay down our lives for one another for the sake of unity? It will only happen through the church's maturity. Are we maturing in our Christ-likeness? Don't ever forget what Christ did for us in Romans. Yet while we were still sinners, he laid down his life for us. Do we have that kind of love? Do we have that kind of unity? Remember, God did not send his son for you and your sins primarily. Don't miss the cross. The cross is not about you. The cross is not about me. The cross is about the glory of God. That's what the love of God is, is for his glory. So I beg the question, do we love for the glory of God? Let us pray. God, I pray as a church, that we would mature in our faith and our knowledge and our conformity and that faith would protect us from every weak doctrine, every human scheme, every deceitful plan, God, and that we as a church would begin to love one another and we would speak the truth into love. God, help us be a unified body that grows and builds itself up in love. God, you loved us so much that you gave your only son for us to be the propitiation for our sins, to, to, to live the perfect life, to die a criminal's death, 
to absorb the wrath of God so that I would not have to. And on the third day, Lord Jesus, you run, you, you raise from the dead, conquering death and sin to give me life and life to the full. I pray, God, that I and the people of you, the people of this church, will live in conformity of you. That we'd know your commandments and we'd obey your commandments. Your commandments were simplified through the Lord Jesus. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Convict us, Lord Jesus. First, if there's anyone in this church that we have ill will towards, we confess that to you, we confess that to them, and you'd unify us. And Lord Jesus, if there's anyone outside the church that doesn't know you that we have ill will, that, that we would go and we'd be reconciled to them. And through that reconciliation, it would be a demonstration of your reconciliation to us. And Lord Jesus, may it be so that the world will know we're your disciples by the way that we love one another. I pray this and I'm thankful for your mighty work, Lord Jesus, at the cross and at the resurrection. Amen.